This Advent, we've been opening the prophecy of Isaiah, the Old Testament book, looking at the ways that um, God was speaking through him to a people in crisis. As I've mentioned uh, a number of times, the book of Isaiah is, uh, in a way, a gloomy book because there are hard words that God's people need to hear. But sprinkled throughout are these glorious glimmers of hope, hope of what God is going to do for his people and the world. And we've been looking at those glimmers of hope together. Before reading uh, the text, uh, let me continue to set the stage uh, for our scripture reading this morning, which is Isaiah 40. As I just mentioned, there's, this is a gloomy time in Israel's history. It was dark because God's people had turned their back to God. They put their trust in other nations. They went after other gods. God planted them in the land with the hopes that they would be a shining light to the world and that they would bear fruit uh, for his kingdom. But that did not come to fruition. And so God sends prophets, and one of those prophets is named Isaiah, and he calls Isaiah... He gives him a hard task. He says, preach to the people until the once mighty oak of David is leveled down to a stump. Declare the word of the Lord in Judah until, get this, there is no one left to hear it and all the cities lie in ruin. Well, eventually that day came. In 587 BCE, the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar defeated and destroyed the last remaining portion of the land that God gave to Jacob's children. The walls of Jerusalem were reduced to rubble. The temple was ransacked and taken apart brick by brick. 587 BCE was the year the nation fell. In addition to all the suffering that comes with war, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were also hit with a spiritual and existential crisis of sorts. It wasn't just their home and city and house of worship that fell when the Babylonians took over. It was their story, their identity as a people. That which they had built their life upon crumbled when Jerusalem crumbled, or so they thought. The people of Jerusalem thought that they were God's special and blessed people, Their story was that Yahweh, the Lord, was the great God above all gods who had delivered them from Egypt and gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. When they gathered for worship, they would gather to sing, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep within His care." Sure, they weren't being obedient sheep during the days of Isaiah, but they still thought of themselves as God's special people living under God's special protection. But when Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed, their story as a people fell apart underneath them. You see, in ancient times, people didn't draw a distinction between church and state. Power struggles between nations were understood to be power struggles between the gods. And whoever won, 
obviously, had the most powerful God. This is why in war they would knock out the temple of their, uh, the opposing people they were fighting. This wasn't just a symbolic gesture. It was a knockout punch delivered by one God to another. And so while the Israelites are being carted off to Babylon, they couldn't help but ask tough questions like, who are we now? Maybe, maybe we built our lives upon a lie. Maybe the Lord's not as good or powerful as we thought he was. Or maybe he's so angry at us that he's decided to end the covenant, and now he's scattering us out among the nations like dust in the wind. I don't think many of us here today have lived through the horror of war, although I know some of you have. But I'm guessing that almost all of us have suffered a crisis of faith at some point in our lives. A season, a moment where we are hit with something that has made us question the goodness of God or the power of God or the enduring love of God for us. I remember connecting with a couple. uh, They were in their 70s when I was um, connecting with them. And they were just so discouraged, so discouraged. They were blessed with... uh, Three children, a happy family. They raised their children to love, to serve the Lord. Christian school, baptism, Bible reading, prayer, catechism, etc. But now their adult children want absolutely nothing to do with God or the church. And they won't even let their parents talk to their grandchildren about God. What happened? They asked me. Is God punishing us? for something we did? Did he not make promises to our children on the day of their baptism? Does he not care? Does he not see? These two pray every day for their family, but sometimes they wonder, what's what's the point? These crises of faith, they happen from time to time when Something happens. The rug is pulled out from underneath us. The story that we've built our life upon just seems to fall apart or shatter. And they ask us, force us to ask hard questions. Questions about where where is God? Does he not care? Is he not powerful? Is he not good? Or have we moved so beyond the reach of God's Uh, good favor that were beyond his redemptive action. So this is, I think we can relate with the people as they're heading off into Babylon. So most commentators believe that Isaiah 40 is this turning point in 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 the book where Isaiah moves from speaking to a people who are still in the land to speaking to a people who are on their way out of the land and into exile. What's God going to say to these people who are suffering the consequences of war and the crisis of faith? Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 40 and read together God's word to them. Instead of reading the whole text in one go, we're going to read a few verses at a time, and then I will offer commentary along the way. So, The word of the Lord, 
Isaiah 40. Hear what God is saying to us today, too. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that our hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We'll stop there for a moment before we go on. Notice the first words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Other than seeing those powerful words put out there twice, comfort, comfort, the other thing I noticed right away is was the possessive pronouns. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. My people, your God. This is the language of the covenant, the language of belonging. With these opening words, it's almost like God is coming alongside of his exiled people and whispering to them, shh, I haven't forgotten about you. You're still mine. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. God's first words to his exiled people, it's, He's he's coming alongside of them and he's nurturing the attachment, the relationship. In a way, this is this is good parenting. Parenting 101. When choose, when children are losing their minds over something, sometimes the best thing you can do as a parent is just get down beside them and simply reassure them of the strength of the relationship. Shh, my son, shh, my daughter. I'm so glad I get to be your dad. I love doing life with you. Provides this security, this comfort, this this um, relational security. You know, it's such a strength. And so is forgiveness. The next words that God speaks to his people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Announce the assurance of pardon. Tell her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for. In other words, the judgment is over. The days of Isaiah preaching you down to a stump, they are complete. Now is the time for compassion and mercy and forgiveness. Israel was a rebellious child and she needed to experience the wages of her sin. And so God allowed the Babylonians to move in and take over and be an instrument of his wrath. By turning his, but turning his face away is not God's preferred posture. And now that the punishment is complete, he is eager to show compassion, forgive, and be reconciled with his people. Relational security, the assurance of pardon. With these opening verses, God is ministering his love to the heart and soul of his shaken people. This is good, but of course, the reality on the ground is that they are still being led off by their captors into exile. Being right with God is a mighty comfort that can enable us to face the darkest of day, but how will God restore the fortunes of his people? What shape will salvation take? The answer is in the next few verses, verse 3 to 5. 
a voice of one calling in the wilderness. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Made straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley should be raised up, shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind shall see it together, or will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the answer for the people is that God will come in his glory. And what's so important to know about these verses is another a little bit more cultural background, is that in ancient times when kings went off to battle, the people would get out and fix the roads in preparation for the king's return. They'd prepare the way. They'd roll out the red carpet. Road crews would be sent out to cut roots and fill in potholes to make a smooth path for the re-entry of the king. Because the last thing you want for your victorious king on his way home from battle is for his chariot to get stuck in some pothole or something. That just sort of ruins the mood, right? So whoever was not fighting in the war would do their part to prepare the way. They would straighten out the crooked roads. They would level the rough ground. And of course, when the king returned on the king's highway, there would be this giant party in the city. Everyone would see. Everyone would go out to celebrate. And all the people would see the glory of the triumphant king. So in response to Israel's spiritual crisis, their sense of alienation and unworthiness, God speaks both words of assurance, forgiveness, and belonging, but he also speaks of a day where he himself, the triumphant king, would come. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Your king will come in glory. Prepare the way, even in the desert, When he comes, every prideful nation like Babylon will be laid low and every humble people will be raised up and all people will see the glory and power of the true king. More on this picture of the returning king a little later as it's picked up later in our text. Uh, For now, let's move on um, to verse 6. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. On the one hand, these verses seem to depart from the theme of comfort. It's it's comforting to know that our sins are forgiven, and that the Lord is coming to save, but it's not comforting to know or be reminded of the fact that our lives are short and temporary like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. We are like that. That is not comforting. But what is comforting to reflect on in these verses, especially if you happen to be carted away into exile, is that the Lord stands above the noise of history. The word of the Lord stands forever. Cultural trends, ideas, people, they come and go. 
They have their moment in the sun, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Kingdoms rise, and it appears as though their influence and power knows no end, but God breathes his hot summer breath upon them, and they die like the grass of the field. Babylon was a fierce force for a number of generations. They were uh, a powerhouse in the Middle East. It looked as though their kingdom would be eternal. But in 539 BCE, less than 50 years later, the Persian Empire came in and defeated the Babylonians. You know, and if you try to look at the map today and find Babylon, there's no country in the world called Babylon anymore. It's somewhere in uh, Iraq or Iran, somewhere in that area of the world. But the Babylonian Empire, it, it fell apart. It had its moment like a grass in the field, and now it's no more. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I don't always find it comforting to reflect on my short existence, but it is comforting to reflect on the sovereignty of God and how in the final analysis of things, his kingdom will come and his will will be done. When the Persians took over after the Babylonians, a new king came into power named Cyrus, and Cyrus was sympathetic to the Jews, and he allowed them to return to their land to rebuild the walls in the city and the temple. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands firm forever. In times of change and uncertainty, this too is a mighty comfort. Let's keep reading, verse 9 to 11. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is a picture of the victory parade that I was talking about before. All the roads have been made straight. All the potholes have been filled in, and the Lord is returning from battle with his liberated people, his reward, leading the way. In today's world, it's the journalists that break the news that the battle is over and the victory has been won. But in ancient times, runners, runners were sent ahead of the returning army as they went back to their own land. Runners would be sent into towns and villages and and little burrows here, there, and everywhere to share the good news. The war is over. The victory has been won. Prepare the way for the returning king. This is what we're seeing in verse 9. You who bring good tidings, you runners who have been sent ahead, go up on a high mountain, lift up your voice. Do not be afraid to shout it out. Say to the town of Judah, behold, here comes your God. See, he comes with power. And this is the picture we get of, of the victorious king coming to his people. 
See, he comes with power and his arm rules for him. He comes with his liberated people. These are the people who are going before him, whom he tends like a flock and holds close to his heart. I love the picture of God that Isaiah gives us here in these verses. It's a picture of both power and tender love, both strength and love. With his strong right hand, he rules the nations. And with his tender left hand, he scoops up his lost sheep and carries them home. With his right hand, he will break the bow and shatter the spear. And with his left hand, he will wipe the tears away from the cheeks of his beloved. Brittany, last week, um, used a memorable baseball illustration in her sermon. And I thought I'd just continue with the baseball illustrations today. But a few years ago, I was watching highlights of a particular game. And one of the highlights took place in the stands. A father was there at the game. And he was holding his newborn baby uh, in his one arm. And a foul ball was hit, a nice hard one, right at the father. He's holding his baby. And with one hand, his strong hand, he, he grabbed the ball with his bare hand. And with other, his other hand, he clutched his newborn baby to his chest. Power and tender care, strength and protection, this is your God. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Let's just go over the list of things that God is speaking here, speaking into the spiritual and existential crisis of his people. He reminds them of the relationship. My people, you are mine. He reminds them that their sins are forgiven. It's been paid for. He reminds them that he's going to come and get them in glory, in power. He reminds them that Babylon, which seems so powerful, in reality is but a blade of grass. And he tells them that when he comes, he will defeat the powers and will carry his people back home like a shepherd carries a sheep. This is the message. This is the message that God gives to his weary and broken people. Into their angst, he speaks comfort. You are not forgotten. You are not beyond redemption. I see you. I care for you. I forgive you. I stand above all powers. And one day I will come in glory to liberate and redeem. Well, 70 years later, the Jewish people were allowed to return to Jerusalem, led by Nehemiah and Ezra, and, sorry, Ezra, Ezra, they went home. But it was not the homecoming they had imagined, and their troubles were far from over. In time, Persia, mighty empire, fell to Alexander the Great, another powerful king. God's people became subject to him for a number of years. 
And then in the 6th century BCE, Jerusalem and Judea were conquered by the Roman Empire and they became subject to Caesar. These were not the days of comfort that the Israelites had envisioned. Where was their God? Where was the glory they were promised? But then one day, the runners broke the silence. Greetings, you who are highly favored, the angel said to Mary. You are going to be with child, and your son will be called the Son of the Most High. He will sit on David's throne, and his kingdom will endure forever. Nine months later, the messengers of peace were sent out again, and this time they shouted, out from, they shouted it out from the mountaintops. They appeared to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks at night. Greetings, the angel said. I bring you good tidings, good news, gospel, that will be of great joy for all the people. Today in the town of Davir, has, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And then all at once, the messengers began to shout the good news. Glory to God in the highest, they sang. And on earth, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. John the Baptist, like a little pothole fill-in crew, <laughs> was sent out, sent to prepare the way, sent to fill in the potholes, get the people ready to meet their incoming king. And with his mighty arm, Jesus came, casting out demons and liberating the oppressed. And with his tender hand, he embraced the sick, the downcast, and spoke forgiveness over those who were stuck in sin. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the people making a straight path for him with their cloaks and their palm branches. See, your king comes, riding on a donkey. Here is your God. The crowds and the disciples wanted Jesus to show more of his power, to use that mighty arm to overthrow his, their oppressors. But Jesus knew that the path to ultimate victory was not the way of the sword, but the way of death and resurrection. With his strong arms, he carried the cross to free us from sin and the wages of our sin. It is finished, he said with his dying breath. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Tell her that it's over, that her sins have been paid for. Through Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus disarmed the powers and the principalities, and in his promised return, he will complete the restoration that he began in his own body. In the meantime, Jesus has commissioned other runners to go out before him into the world. Mary was the first to share the good news. Peter, James, and John were sent out too. Missionaries like Paul were called and sent to bring the good news to Europe and the Gentiles. And we too, way over here in Alston, we've received the message and have found comfort and strength in it. And we are readying ourselves for the victory parade that will happen when our king returns. And I don't know what crisis you find yourself in the middle of today, what hard questions you're asking about God and where is he and what's going on. Perhaps you're getting tired of waiting. 
Perhaps you're wondering what God could be up to in the midst of all this madness. Does he not care? Does he not see? God's response to us today is comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. I see you. I love you. I have forgiven you. And when the time is right, I will return in power to complete my kingdom and wipe the tears from your eyes. And so we wait. Advent, this season of weighing and praying, keeping our eyes open, looking at the horizon, waiting for the coming of our King. And as we wait, let's continue to prepare the way to smooth out the rough places, to fill in the potholes, to roll out the red carpet in our lives, in our church, to make way for the coming King. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are deeply comforted today with your word, which shows us clearly and consistently that you are for us, that your face is turned towards us in love and mercy. Long ago, your people suffered a crisis of faith and you reassured them of your steadfast love. Lord, we need that reassurance today too as we wait and wonder in these trying times. Turn your face towards us now, Lord. Speak to us your word of comfort. We're inspired too, Lord, by the picture that Isaiah gives of both your mighty strength and your tender, compassionate love. And I pray, Lord, that you would exercise both, both of your arms here in our church today and in our community. Protect us and comfort us. Fight for us and draw us close to your heart. Thank you for this hope, Lord. Continue to help us uh, to prepare the way for your return, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.